report in. Red 10 standing by. Red 9 standing by. Red 3 standing by. Red 6 standing by. Red 9 standing by. You're listening to the Ion Cannon Podcast. Laugh it up, fuzzball. Your source for entertainment reviews from a galaxy far, far away. This is it. He lays Welcome to the Ion Cannon Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Tom and William. Today, we're going to be discussing two episodes, as we've been doing the last couple times. First, we're going to talk about Season 1, Episode 5 of The Mandalorian, titled The Gunslinger. And then we'll be reviewing Season 2, Episode 10 of The Resistance, titled Kaz's Curse, which I'm pretty sure is just a normal episode of Resistance. (laughs) Um, That's what I would say. Yeah, so starting with the announcements, as, as we do... Uh, William, I, there was some news that actually broke in the middle of our last episode, and we didn't catch it until after. You want to tell us about that? We uh, we did catch it, but we uh, got distracted talking uh, talking Mandalorian and uh, didn't get a chance to cover it. But yeah, it, it did break during the middle of our previous episode, and uh, that is the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser officially set sail in 2021. It's going to be a two-night immersive vacation with a cruise-style itinerary, just as we had speculated in it was rumored to be. Um, you'll basically get like curbside check-in uh, at the Star Cruiser terminal, and then you'll you'll board a launch pad, which takes you up to the Halcyon, the giant Star Cruiser. You'll be uh, uh, traveling on uh, through your two-day, two-night, three-day stay, and it'll basically, as you you know, board the ship, it'll look like you're traveling up into space. And as previously reported, you'll have all sorts of fun. Um, while you're up in space, uh, before you head back to uh, Batu, you'll get a, a spaceport of call at Black Spire Outpost, and again, you'll feel like you're you know in in universe the entire time landing on the planet, and uh, yeah, it sounds incredible. There's going to be stuff to do on the Star Cruiser to keep you entertained, but think about it basically like a, a cruise ship where you'll have a you know a port of call, and uh, maybe once or twice, um, I guess is probably on. The middle day, you'll go down to Batu and you'll check in on, I'm guessing now, probably the afternoon on the first day and depart the morning of the second day so they can just that keep make these sense. people going. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so we don't know how much it's going to cost. We do know that it will launch in 2021, and they do have a website set up now for updates. Uh, I have an answer Ooh. for you. A lot. A lot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something that we're probably not going to be there the first Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, well, it might be. I mean, Tom, look at it this way. You've got how much, how long to save? Yeah. Yeah, but I still need to make it to a Seahawks game. I'm sorry, guys. I gotta, I gotta pick my It's a once in a lifetime cruise. Are you telling me you're prioritizing the Seahawks over the Galactic Star Cruiser, the Halcyon? Heck yeah, I'm wearing my Seahawks sweatshirt right now because it's cold in the house. I do find it slightly weird that you're the bigger Seahawks fan of the two people who live in Seattle. (laughs) No, isn't that funny? (laughs) Right. But you know what? We will make it there. I, I will make it there at some point. I just don't know when. Oh, it's going to be great. We'll, we'll, we'll have to figure out a time for us all to, to go together. But um, yeah, we'll podcast, you know how cool that would be to actually podcast a, a, to do a recording on the Halcyon while we're in space with everybody around us? You know how cool that would be? Incredible. As if we would have the time for that. Hey, you never know. Yeah. You never know. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's it's going to be it's going to be great. Uh in other news, uh, the Mandalorian chapter 7 um 
will air on uh, uh, Wednesday, 12-18. So just a heads up, Chapter 6 will air on uh, Friday as per usual. So we Friday the 13th. And then um, uh, on uh, next week, we will not be having an episode on the 20th. And that is because, you know, it comes out on the 20th. The Rise of Skywalker. Um, That does not ring a bell. Oh, I know. Star Wars. Yes, the Rise, Rise of, Skywalker. of Skywalker. So we are we are a week and a half away from the final movie in the Skywalker saga, which is just so crazy to think about. So instead of giving getting an episode of The Mandalorian on the twentieth, we will instead be getting it on Wednesday the eighteenth. So uh, look for that uh, soon. So we'll get Friday and then Wednesday rather than the following Friday, and then the show will be back to its regularly scheduled series uh sorry series not season finale on the 27th perfect so, just a few more cool. episodes to go it's it's hard to believe how fast this season has gone speaking of which we're already uh we're now into the uh, second half <coughs> the back half of this season and tom would you like to tell us uh what we'll be discussing today Sure. What we're going to be reviewing tonight is the Mandalorian Chapter 5 titled The Gunslinger. This episode, what's really cool about it, it was directed and written by Dave Filoni. Now, in this episode, the Mandalorian helps a rookie bounty hunter who is in over his head. I was almost going to say way over his head because that's the appearance for me the gunsling- the the rookie was. So, But isn't that cool? This is like the first episode that was written by Dave Filoni. Well, it's not just that. This is the first episode that's not written by John Favreau, I think, right? Exactly. And one of only two episodes in the entire season that were not written by John Favreau. Well, I'm sure Favreau had a little bit of a hand in this. I mean, it, they, they oh, sure. appear to have a great working relationship with this. I'm sure, you know, Filoni probably got a little bit of advice and help on both things that he's been doing. But we all know Dave Filoni is an expert at writing Star Wars and uh, mm-hmm. sneaking these little Easter eggs for the fans. And uh, he certainly did I, with this one. I, I don't know. I don't know I would call this episode an episode of little Easter eggs. <laughs> little Easter eggs are like, oh, it's the Camtono. It's the ice cream machine from episode five. It's the Lothcat. <clears throat> this was a little bit more, um, I don't know, dinosaur egg. Is that a thing? The the, the anvil. Ostrich egg, maybe? The anvil well, was it, falling was it down. That... <laughs> In a good way. Okay, we'll put it this way. I didn't think it was that big of an Easter egg because it, an Easter egg to me is something that's so obvious, but they don't use it. In this one, with those pit droids, yeah, that's a great little Easter egg, but they were actually there for a good purpose and to me, <laughs> helped the story move along. Well, there's, there's, and, there's, there's and more than just that. I mean, it, really, this entire episode was just oozing with references for big star wars fans and and little ones uh, you know uh, uh, alike um, and that's what i really didn't want to point out because they were all over the place that made it feel so cool yeah it really did but um the episode actually begins before we even get to the the, the familiar we get a really cool dogfight with bounty hunter riot mar played by rio hackford um steven what, what your thoughts I- on the space battle I wanted it to be longer. Can we just have the entire episode be the space battle? Is that okay? Well, maybe next time. I mean, who knows what happens would, next season? That would be nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's, you know, the Mandalorian is being uh, chase, hunted, chased down. I don't know the, quite what the right word is, but, you know, he's up against uh, another bounty hunter named Riot Mar, played by uh, Rio Hackford. And you can, 
Uh, it kind of reminded me of the dog, uh, the dog fight from episode two in the asteroid uh, asteroid field, where that's just like you can really feel the the weight of each blast. You can feel the mm. damage. Um, you get to see the shields being hit off Mandalorian mm. ship as he takes fire. Like it, it just works really well. Yeah, I, I'd almost equate it to the difference in like blasting stormtroopers between the original trilogy and the Force Awakens, where. When a stormtrooper is blasted in the Force Awakens, you, you get that extra <clears throat> oomph of physicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's right. both audio, it's visual, like it it's a more uh, I'd almost call it like full spectrum might be my my verb of choice or adjective mm-hmm. of choice. Yeah, you I, I just I thought it was really really well done. There was one minor piece of the battle that started to bother me at first, uh, and I was kind of like I started to roll my eyes. And then it all made it better a second later. And that was when Riot Mar says, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. And at first I was like, okay, like really does every bounty hunter have to say that? And then I really appreciate when the Mandalorian actually said, that's my line, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes it all better, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it is just, if you're a bounty hunter, that's, that's one of the things they teach you in bounty hunter school. Yeah. Uh, and I liked how the Mandalorian basically acknowledged that it was a repeat and, and that it was his line. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely yeah so it's, it's cool i yeah you like like you said it would been fun to see a slightly longer uh, space battle but they had a lot of stuff going on in this episode and it was nice to see that you know even still now that they've uh, they've escaped the planet the the bounty hunters are still coming after them well that's a that's a very prized target he's got with him i mean look at how many bounty hunters when he went when he left when he when, when he left the enclave all those bounty hunters had that little tracking device and they all lit up of course they're going to keep following him yeah they want that bounty yeah also the the maneuver where like the mandalorians his, his engine starts you know smoking and is not looking good and uh he near the end of the battle immediately like cuts speed and reverses almost and basically I blows out his loved, engine. i love the detail of the the fins on the engine mm-hmm. kind of readjusting and you can tell like it's not just, you can, I don't know. Like it's, it's not just that he put the brakes on. It's you can actually see like, oh no, this is exactly how the ship is doing it. It's just, yeah. Well, it's like, cool. it's like when a when a standard jetliner lands on a runway, and when they do the thrusters, you see some of the engines on the back. They pop the extra um, outlets or yeah. inlets or whatever you want to call them that actually help it the plane slow down. Yeah, and that's exactly the same thing here those things popped out to basically use as, let's say, quote-unquote speed brakes. Yeah, yeah, and you really get the sense that, like, the Mandalorian is intentionally almost destroying his ship. You know, like, like he's he's, he's oh, pushing it to the limit. I didn't, I didn't take that as the ship being I, damaged. I agree. Really? It looked like he blew the engine because of the maneuver. Like, it was, it was on, no, he was pushing no, it on the No, the engine edge. was doing no. that before that. Because you see the, his engine take a couple of hits before... Um, he ever, you know, pulls the Interesting. the braking maneuver. Yeah, before he pulls uh, the maneuver. It looked to me like he was at like 20%, I don't know, I'm just making up a number here, 20% engine, you know, um, uh, like the, it was only working at 20%. And then when he made that, did that maneuver, he like completely destroyed the engine uh, on the left side. But yeah, yeah I don't, it allowed him to like I did not get that at all. No, I, I didn't think it was a baiting maneuver. I think it was just he took the opportunity and the <laughs> engine just, that happened. Hmm. So, Interesting. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, either way, it was cool. It was a neat maneuver. And of course, seeing Baby Yoda's reactions during the whole space battle was a lot of fun as well, especially when the ship is doing spinning, which I, I, I hear is a good trick. Really? Who told <laughs> you that? Uh, a, a little boy named uh, Annie. 
Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so where did where did you hear this trick, William? Um yeah, uh, Anakin Skywalker. Let's try spinning. That's a good trick. I know, but where? <sighs> oh my god. William, I'm trying to set you up for a segue on after, you know, the Mandalorian ship is damaged, he goes to a place that he learned knows. that spinning is a good over, trick. I heard it over Naboo. Let's try spinning. That's a good trick. Okay, oh, that is, but that's... Uh, you're right. Never mind. That is over Naboo. I was thinking it was in Tatooine. <laughs> but Sorry, I don't, little Annie I, does come from the oh, planet. Oh, man. The oh, dust planet. Oh, I tried. Well, Steven, you tried. You tried. I tried, and, yeah. and, and then I failed. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> okay. what ends up happening is, and what, what Steven was trying to bait William into saying, because yep. the Razor Crest was so badly damaged, where does he have to... What planet was he above, which was almost, almost a direct, almost direct camera left from the original movie but he ends up on Tatooine yeah with that same kind of view to where you're just sitting there at this nice expanse of the planet and you expect the Tantive 5 just to come right across the screen with a star destroyer right behind it but no it's the razor crest isn't that cool I love the inclusion of Tatooine I think when they were filming the episode we saw the 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 sand planet and then I'm sure we all you know thought Oh well, like it, it could it be Tatooine? Could it be? Uh, could it be Naboo? Uh, sorry, Naboo, uh, Jakku. Um, you know, we didn't really know where it, where this place was. Um, and you know, there was a lot of speculation, especially as they were, they were filming the episode and, and and whatnot. And then later, we find out that it's it's actually not Naboo at all. Um, it's you know, it's. Um, uh, Arvala seven. Right. And it's, you know, and I, I kind of assume that any of the dust scenes, the, the sand scenes must be on Arvala seven now. Yeah. But no, it's not. We actually do get to travel to good old Tatooine. And this is the furthest we've seen Tatooine out in the timeline. So this is like way, way later. And then things mm-hmm. have kind of changed quite a bit on Tatooine and and are also when? still the same. Well, no, no, no. There's there's some changes. When was the last there, time we were on Tatooine? In, was it, it was wasn't it in the sequel trilogy. So yeah, we've yeah, been it's gotta be Return of the Jedi. No, 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 no. The last time we were on Tatooine, remember, it was in Rez- it was in uh Rebels. Well, in the timeline would be Return But that's of the, the timeline. No, well, Re- no, but six takes place after Rebels. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sorry yeah. About that. that's crazy. So that's it's been true. a while. Do we hit Tatooine in any of the books? Oh, I don't uh, think yeah, I mean, like Aftermath had uh, a number of scenes on Tatooine with like eh. Cobb Vance, Vance and stuff. Um, we, we've seen Tatooine so, in other places, but this is the first time we've seen it uh, this far out, at least post Rot J on screen. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of cool. And the, and the references flow from here. Oh, yes. We get uh, good old Docking Bay 35. Let's we'll run through them real quick and then we'll, we'll but go back through. Docking Bay 35 isn't in A New Hope, is it? No, it's 94. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. I, was I like, didn't think I so. I thought it was 94. Yeah. But, <clears throat> I mean, but I it's close. They, it's, the, it's clearly the same Docking Bay complex. Right. Because it looks. It was just, it was just a little bit less than 94. Yeah. 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 It's pretty amazing how well they recreated Tatooine. Mm hmm. I was shocked. It's, yeah. 
Like, I, oh man, I'm gonna say something maybe controversial. I think they did a better job of remaking Tatooine than they did in well, than we saw in episode two. Hmm. Fair, fair enough. I mean, most of that was it's, happening in Mos Espa versus Mos Eisley, but uh, true. But I'm talking. I mean, more. I'm, I'm talking more look and feel. Like yeah. episode one did a really good job at it. I'd say. Yeah. Um, and you're right that a lot of that is probably not. Uh, well, that's more true. About... Actually, we did get to see a lot of like the Lars Homestead in Attack of the Clones. True. Um, Very true. But yeah, I, I I think you're right. Like it looks great, and you know, lest I um, you know seem somewhat hypocritical or something. The uh, you know, I, I think I complained a couple episodes ago about how the the shot entering the the bounty uh, the the Mandalorian enclave was the same, you know, and where the, the the armor is. But there were some shots that were very close, if not identical, to A oh. New Hope. And, oh, absolutely! But in this case, I loved it because it, it felt different. It, the music was different. The 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 context was different. Uh, it was also f- much further apart. Uh, so I I do acknowledge that this is an identical, very similar scene. Um, but I actually liked this one a lot. Like, you know, uh, and we'll come back and talk about the the story reasons why the Mandalorian that comes here later. But they visit um, Chalman's Moss Eisley Cantina, and mm-hmm. the, the out exterior shot is exactly it's exactly the shot. yeah. It's pretty amazing yeah like well even when he enters the town yeah it's almost exactly the same yeah i mean even when he gets inside the masai cantina there's still some shots that are the same but yeah the one thing that i found fascinating about this there's a big difference between the first time we see it till now yeah and the biggest thing for me was there was droids inside that bar because remember the Look, labor time, costs people are true. really expensive it's, very true you know, what maybe you still snarkiness from a droid. Doesn't maybe R two and three PO entering that cantina kind of started to open their minds, and then they uh, started a movement. Yeah. Yep. But the now it's staffed by noticed. two EV droids, like EV ninety nine in in Jabba's palace, and they're now the bartenders, and it's just such a different style, and it did mm-hmm. feel a little more um, empty. It, I would say. Yeah, I was gonna say. That's it's what a I was little emptier. Say. Yeah. I did like. We still got some. You know, some. I call it classic alien shots almost, mm-hmm. um, which again, just helps make it feel exactly what you want it to feel like. You know, it feels like the cantina from Moss Eisley. Uh, yep. Even without, you know, the, uh, the, um, any, any of the, the bands there, there's no music yeah. happening in the background. Yeah. There was no music, but like figure and Dan and the model nodes weren't playing, but it still feels like the cantina a lot. It felt like it, but as as Stephen mentioned, and I think you mentioned the same thing, there wasn't a lot of people there. Right. Which I, I I'm kind of back and forth on. I kind of miss the the crowdiness of it, the griminess of it, you know. But then again, I'm looking at it. This is how many years after mm-hmm. we were originally there. Things on the planet definitely have changed. Maybe people have moved away from uh, Mos Eisley. Maybe yeah. they went to Mos Espa, anywhere else. That's probably why it was the way it was. Yeah. It is eight years later. Yeah. So things happen. People migrated. Yeah. Maybe they decided now that the Empire Empire is gone, we'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Sure. Well, and we see that the um, the, there's there's stormtrooper heads on spikes. Oh, that was um, cool. Yeah, you know, which is yeah. from the 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 trailer. And clearly, like a warning to Imperials, like the 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 planet is not friendly to Imperials. Now, so. before we talk about another 
uh, iconic shot in the tri- cantina. I want to rewind and mm. talk about the mechanic that the Mandalorian meets named, I think it was Pelimoto Moto. Yeah, yep. Pelimoto played by Amy Sedaris. Yeah. Uh, as a start, I, I, I say this with a we uh, a question. I think I love how they keep the like seventies hairdos that defines Tatooine, <laughs> which I mean, it's seventies hairdos like bet- like the shots of Biggs, Luke. Everyone's got seventies hair because you know they filmed it in nineteen seventy six or seventy seven. Um, but it definitely adds a little bit to see her. I, I how would you describe her look? Richard Simmons is probably the closest analogy. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I do, but you also have to look at it, look at it. They did the same thing with Rogue One. They had oh, to yeah. keep everything uh, in universe at the time, so and it, it only and made it, sense. The same thing had to happen here. It works. Yeah, is the maybe I think the scary thing of it. Well, it's it's not scary, but it's the familiarity familiarity of us who have watched that movie so many times. I think it would be a little bit out of place if they didn't do that kind of style because it wouldn't feel like it's tying straight into that universe that it's supposed to be set in. No, yeah. I, I think she looks, she looked good. I have this weird, I don't really know how to de- describe it. I can't put my finger on it because you're right. She looks like she stepped right out of a new hope in terms of like the seventies, uh, late seventies style hairstyles and everything. Uh, and, and the clothing is spot on. The costumes look great. Um, I thought she was a, a you know a different type of character than we've seen before in Star Wars Two, which I enjoyed. You know, yeah, much more motherly mm-hmm. and um, you know really caring uh, for the the child and stuff. But caring is a strong word, I think. Yeah, well, I would say she that. was kind we'll of uh, incentivized by uh, uh, by money, but you know, um, she tries to teach the Mandalorian a thing thing or two. But for a lot of these, I'd say like C hmm, level characters, right? They're not like the, I'm not talking about like the Mandalorian or even like the secondary characters like Grief Karga or uh, the client or, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Fennec Shand even. Uh, but there's a lot of these supporting characters that much, uh, very much like the Peli or um, Winta and um, and Omera from uh, last week's episode or whatnot they feel kind of two-dimensional um, yeah i guess hmm. i don't know if it's two-dimensional or just like there's something feels off about them like something is feels too almost tv budget but i can't place my finger on it because i can't point to one thing and say that's what it is like, i was trying I, to think like is it the acting and i'm like well i don't Maybe, you know but what? I don't think so. Is it the clothing? In some of the characters, yes, but not in the case of Peli. Um, I, I, I think I'm going to backtrack to last week's episode. Because um, I think I had the same problem with the um, the lady who was in charge of the bar. To where there was something about the character. She fit in universe, mm-hmm. but there was something about either written, dial, written acting, whatever, didn't seem quite right. And I think you probably translate that into this character for this week. That just something is just a little off to make that character believable in this universe. It's the writing in the last two episodes is, I don't want to say the writing has been poor. I don't think it's been as good as the first couple, 
Mm-hmm. And I think a little bit of it is that they they the first episodes especially are defined by the almost a lack of dialogue. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these episodes are it's almost like it's halfway. They're still trying to keep it dialogue light, but they they just have a bunch of scenes that require more dialogue. Right. Like things like the Mandalorian negotiating over, you know, getting a ship repaired. That's not something you can do or a transaction you can have in one word. True. Correct. Correct. Does, I think that's what's causing it because I, I am noticing it as well. But, but, I noticed it less in this episode. But if it feels like, I, I do agree, it felt like less in this episode, but it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just the, the, the dialogue though because I felt mm. like it was the character, the side characters themselves that were just a little off. Yeah, and I can't place it. It, it, it doesn't, it's still a, it's still fantastic, uh, a t- fantastic show. Mm-hmm. But there's just Absolutely. something that feels right. TV budgety, and and it and and I think like I, it kind of uh, doesn't feel like in universe. And and I I think I know where you're coming from. Like I said, the character from last week, I picked it up on that one. I didn't pick it up that much on this episode. Mm-hmm. It was I mean, more so last episode. And let's be clear, it. This is a TV budget. Correct. They, and we're not, it, and it's not it has a larger budget than a lot of other TV shows, but there are limits on where you can use that. Yeah. Correct. Things like, you know, expensive CGI ship fights that work very, very well take right. up a lot of that. Right. And probably the recreation of Tatooine in and of itself, that's going to take up some of your budget too. Yeah. So, you know, and then on top of that, the Mandalorian did have to come up with 500 credits for him to go try and get a ship, at least for docking fee and repairs. So that's some money that had to go too. Yeah, I I appreciate how well she nickel and dimes him, and kind of like that uh, when you take your car into the shop, uh, you know, less than reputable shop, and like, oh yeah, look, oh car, that's a that's a bad motivator you've got right mm-hmm. there. That's gonna we got to replace that. Oh. Your filters are just awful. We, you, you really shouldn't be driving with that. That'll be another couple hundred dollars yeah, or and then, credits. And then look, there's a bunch of carbon scoring. Were you in a fight or something? Hmm, <laughs> that's going to have to be cleaned. Absolutely. And I yeah. do like them. Uh, I liked her pit droid crew. I'll, this is going to sound weird. I feel like they, they found the right, the right level of physical humor with the pit droids. That I agree with. You know, just enough that's uh, not annoying, but enough that you're like, oh, yeah, that is a pit droid. Pit droids are kind of silly and funny that way. Yep. It's probably and it's one of the things Dave Floney, I think, does really well at, too, is like combining different eras into the same uh, the same show. You know, mm-hmm. we've got absolutely the pit droids. Right. We've got the Moss Eisley Cantina, and they all feel like Tatooine in one spot. Yep. Yeah, really and nice. also with the pit droids there at the uh, docking bay, it does prove, or it does go again to show, the Mandalorian does not trust droids. So, True. yeah, which is again a nice little detail because we learned that he was, you know, uh, he was almost killed by a, a super battle droid. I, so I will say, I I hope it, we don't get too many more references to this in future episodes. I. I want the Mandalorian to have more uh, character than he doesn't like droids. That's not a whole lot to like. I get it. He doesn't like droids. Good point. I Very think good he's point. Slightly, he, he is more than that. 
Uh, I agree, but I just, I want him to have interactions with people besides the droid conversation is all. Yeah, sure. So that's that's fair. True, but have you ever heard a Mandalorian called a womp rat before? That uh, I have now, and I liked it. I know that I liked it too. That was pretty fun. As yeah, again, you know, as listeners know, we talked about this. I think it was last week when the Mandalorian called Baby Yoda a womp rat. You know, we we ran on the womp rat scale, and it was perfect, especially since we're on Tatooine, home of the womp rats. Well, maybe one of, of many homes. And that, that almost sounds like a baseball team. Home, home of the womp of rats. The Tatooine womp rats. That's the uh, that's the Tatooine baseball team. The Tatooine womp rats. Okay. Now yeah. you want to talk about so. man, the Mandalorian is definitely not a parent. Who would leave a baby Yoda asleep on a shi- uh, ship? I will say this was my biggest, I think, complaint with the episode was really, I it just didn't make sense to me. We we know he's being hunted, mm-hmm. and he he disappears for how long? Like an indeterminate amount of time to go and try and find a job with but, just leaving the child on a ship. But and he's we not know a dad. he's not a dad. He's a Mandalorian. Oh uh, yes, but we know he gets hunted too. True. That's I no. I don't care about the leaving the child alone part, whatever. But it's right. the, uh, all right, I do care about that. Not because he's a poor parent, but because there are people hunting him. We know there are people hunting him. Why would mm-hmm. you leave your your asset for, you know, in open view where anyone can find it? No, that's that's actually a good point. I mean, the even ship Pelly, wasn't even locked. True. True, because Baby Yoda was able to walk right out and even surprise Pelly about it, too, because Pelly didn't know he was in there. I do like Pelly's uh, the the dollar signs appearing around. Like ah, yeah, <laughs> I, get to, I get to charge him for daycare. Perfect. Yep, that was fun. That actually was a really good line. I like that. Yeah, and I, I, again, I think you know, to your point, this is the one, the one place I think where the the Mandalorian's logic faltered. He he continues to leave Baby Yoda alone, thinking that, um, thinking that he'll like not leave the ship, when in fact. Every time, consistently, Baby Yoda leaves the ship. Um, and it's not something like, most of the time you look at the Mandalorian's logic and you're like, yep, you're, you're pretty smart. You got a good head on your shoulders, uh, unlike uh, Kaz. Um, but, <laughs> you know, every once in a while he makes a, a not-so-great decision like this. and It doesn't cause a major issue in the end, thankfully, but, you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't his it's smartest the, move. It's not the brightest move. No. No. Thankfully, you know, Pelly happens to be nice enough that while she sees the dollar signs, um, she's also willing to she's also willing to protect the baby. Mm-hmm. Right? She could have turned the baby in. She's actually the first the first character we see in the show who doesn't try to turn Baby Yoda in. Okay, but would she know that that Baby Yoda is being hunted along with the Mandalorian? No, I would assume who, not. Who, yeah, and who would she turn him into? Other than saying the Mandalorian's a bad parent. But you do have to give one little nod, which I thought was pretty cool. Pelly noticed him because of a certain sound that was coming out of the Razor, razor Crest. That I thought was cool. Yeah, because what, that, it sounded vaguely... Um, that's what I thought, too. Crate Dragon-esque. That's what of, I thought, too. Or like but the sound that Obi Wan made that was like yep. the Kree Dragon. It wasn't. Yeah. It had more of a childlike um, uh, ring to it. So it was a baby, baby Kree Dragon. 
He's not his nine. He's not an Obi Wan age. He's not a nine hundred year old age. He's a fifty year old. Well, no, he's fifty years old. He should have had a little bit of a deeper voice. But he's a fifty year old baby. He's going to have a little bit of a higher pitch with a baby crate dragon. Still made him noticeable. And Pelly was like, "Oh, hey, yeah." yeah. I I just like the little little touch. It made it again feel kind of very much like a, a Tatooine thing. Other little touches that I liked were uh, the Peli and the pit droids uh, playing Sabacc for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with bolts and motivators as currency. Um, now we know why she was charging so much for the do- for the port fee. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they're just using this for fun parts and uh, well, yeah. bolts and motivators. Um, and also like how when she goes to investigate Baby Yoda coming out of the ship uh, before she sees the child, she like has the pit droids kind of hand her the blaster and we see the pit droids operating uh, her blaster briefly, uh, which, you know, I, I don't know if I trust a pit droid handing me a blaster. Uh, they don't seem very reliable, but I wouldn't trust a pit droid with a blaster anyway. They could have shot each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but, but that takes us back to the cantina and the appearance of Toro, who is sitting in a very familiar booth with a very familiar, uh, I don't know, how would you describe it? Like, Stance, I'm, I'm or, uh, sit, stance, you know, yeah, well, sitting stance position, sit, yeah, because I mean, he's got his feet up on the table. He's pretty much like he's supposed to be a, like a, a young Han Solo, in many ways. That, and I hated him on sight. You did, really interesting. I, I just he looks like, and I thought he looked kind of like an irritating character, uh, and you know, an un, someone who's not trustworthy. Uh-huh. And I feel vindicated for my. Uh, <laughs> choices so you know yeah i mean you know toro is he's supposed to be that kind of slimy character a little bit bounty hunter not really kind of young um you know inexperienced he he much much more cocky than his experience um should uh you know uh allow him to be Mm -hmm. and uh for sure you know I, i wasn't a huge fan of him at first in fact i felt like he kind of felt a little bit I don't know, like not not the great, not not the best choice maybe to play the role until later on in the episode. I'm like, oh okay, I I I, I actually like what they did here. Uh, I thought that I think J- it- Jake Cannavale actually did a pretty good job playing Toro, because um, he's supposed to be this the young hotshot who just wants to to get in. And the the way in which the scene went down, I also really appreciated because the you know he Toro overhears the Mandalorian looking for, for work. And apparently the, the bounty hunters guild no longer operates on Tatooine, which is. Now that, you know? that would be an interesting thing to find out why. Yeah. It was like the, you, the huts, you know, the death of Jabba I, or. I took it as a death of Jabba thing. Um, maybe that's why, you know, his torture droids are now working in, uh, less, uh, you know, in cantinas. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he initially starts to lie. And he's like, oh, yeah, I want to go after this. He's being very, very cocky, and, and he tries to, to convince the Mandalorian to help him uh, capture this assassin named Fennec Shan, played by uh, Ming-Na Wen, who was one of the big actresses they promoted being attached to the show early on or, or somewhat, you know, midway, I guess, through production. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and uh, he 
instantly the Mandalorian sees through his his lies and his false bravado, and he's like, "How long have you been with the guild?" And he's like, "Oh, long enough." And he's like, "Well, clearly you don't know who Fennec Shand is because she is uh, she's a very bad mercenary who's been who assassinated uh, many many New Republic uh, people, and eventually the New Republic put her bosses in uh, in prison, and she's now been on the run." And she works for crime syndicates in the huts. So, you know, not not the best, best person to be going on after, especially on the planet Tatooine. Okay, the guy's naive. What do you expect? It's his first job. That's right. why he's like, maybe he realized at this point he wasn't over his head. Hey, let's get a Mandalorian. There's very few of them in the galaxy, and there's one sitting right here. Let me get some help with this guy. It's a hazing ritual, right? Absolutely. Like, oh, oh, yeah, we're going to be this easy target to get into the guild. Don't worry about it. It should be pretty easy. Actually, oh, I wonder if, like, sorry. Yeah. Did we give you the most one of the like most fearsome mercenaries? Sorry about that. I actually wonder. Do you think they gave him that one in particular, or he chose it? I don't know. I'm, guessing, good... I'm guessing he chose it as a way to be yeah, uh, copy. Yeah. Yeah. And and like, it, <clears throat> he's got to develop a swagger, and that's the one thing about it. He didn't have the swagger because he's a newbie. Right, but I I, I, I I like that, and I liked his dynamic with the Mandalorian, where the Mandalorian instantly sees through it, or just you know, he's like, "Cut the crap!" Like, I'm just gonna yep. show you how it is. And, now I find it surprising the Mandalorian did help him. Well, that's I, what I find surprising. I don't. That didn't surprise me because it actually shows the Mandalorian's really? heart. Um, as we've seen mm-hmm. through the throughout the series so far, the Mandalorian he tries to put on a gruff exterior and a, like he doesn't care. But deep down, he really does, and, and it's not until that till Toro mentions that this is his first job ever, and that he doesn't actually care about the money. All he cares about is joining well, the bounty hunters guild. And keep that's in mind, he's also like, he needs the money. Well, he doesn't yeah. have the money to pay for the repairs. True, but he he did he initially Fennec, uh, sorry, uh, Toro was like, oh, "I'll give you all the money." He's like, "No, I don't want to go after Fennec Shand." Uh, she's too dangerous. I don't care. The only thing that convinces her is when he, Toro says, "Hey, this is my first job, and I just—if I do this, I get in the in the guild." And then he kind of pauses. He's like, "Oh, you know what? Okay, I mm. guess I'll—I guess I'll help you out." And it kind of shows that, you know, the Mandalorian—he actually does care about people in some ways, especially if it helps him out. Uh, I don't know. I, I think you're reading more into it than there is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was basically doing it because you know what? He helps him, he gets the money. Why would he have changed his mind then? Because he'd already been offered the money, and he was what? What uh, else would convince I'm, him to go I'm after Tor? I'm guessing it's because he maybe that he figures then have to worry about being double crossed because you know this guy's a noob who isn't going to know anything. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah, but he, uh, um, he Tor does something incredibly. Uh, unwise or i guess to at least try to keep the mandalorian from uh stealing his his bounty and going rogue uh, he he destroys the tracking fob and uh it just tells the mando yep i got it memorized um so you now you need me it just I makes didn't me think it was unwise. Wonder, like, i thought that was probably the smartest thing the kid did all day yeah it just honestly. makes me wonder like easily because a mandalorian could have just offed him in the back and boom taken the sh- Taking the bounty himself. True. And not knowing the Mandalorian, I think, you know, it may have been wise on his part, but um, 
how, it makes me still wonder how these tracking fobs work because mm-hmm. we have this positional beeping thing right, where, where the, the, the closer you get in proximity to the target, the more it beeps. It has to be DNA based or something to that extent because how are they going to sit? But then again, how do they get the DNA for that tracker or is it an actual tracker on the target? That, God, do you think we'll ever find out? Maybe. I don't know because what it's, at least I, he claims that it's positional data in the tracker uh, and it, it mentions that he's, you know, headed out beyond the Dune Sea. Uh, mm-hmm. The Fennec is headed out beyond the Dude Sea. But, like, when he destroys the tracker at that point in time, and presumably he would have had to memorize the, the coordinates before that because, you know, he didn't, like, look at the tracker again. Mm-hmm. He uh, he would have had Fennec's old location, and she could have easily moved. And it would actually right. have made find, finding her much, it, much more difficult. It doesn't take them that long to find her, though. No. I think, I think that... I, I agree it was probably not the smartest thing, but... He also strikes me as a, he has more money than brains. I think he just assumes like, oh yeah, we'll get out there quickly. We'll figure it out. She couldn't have gone that far. We'll have the fastest speeders (laughs) in, in Tatooine. That's not going to be an issue. That's true. Well, fastest, fastest speeders and also a brand new pair of macro binoculars. There you go. Poor guy. Poor guy. Well, okay, so so let, so now that I brought that up, so what did you guys think of the Mandalorian actually using? First off, seeing Tusken Raiders again, which I thought was really cool. But uh, hang on, before we get there, okay. So that just there's because there's one little uh, again, no, a nice little ahead. detail. So they meet at Docking Bay 35. He's got his brand new swoop bikes, top of the line, yada yada yada. And Peli comes out to see them off, and that is when Toro sees the child for the first time. Which is, you know, the key in why he ends up uh, betraying the Mandalorian later. And I love the look he gives, like the little, that's like, what, what is that you're holding? And it's like that mm-hmm. the head shake, like, whatever, I don't care. And just gets on the, on the swoop. It's just so, so great. Um, and the music in the scene, like when they're riding the swoop bikes, it's probably some of my favorite music in the series so far, aside from the main title, the main theme. Yeah, the, action music. all just all the shots of them heading out into the Dune Sea are fantastic. I love the the bob and weave of the swoop bikes. I like they Perfect. feel like they're floating, but they also feel solid enough, which has that kind of just magical feel, which we I, I don't know. It's just a, it's a neat detail, I guess. Yeah, you can tell they're floating, but they're not. It's mm-hmm. they're not. You can tell they're not episode four props where, you know, it's a mirror and wheels or mm-hmm. It feels like they're disconnected. Yeah, That's it very feels cool. feels really good. Um, and Tom, to to your point, that I, I yes. really like the scene with the 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 Banthas and the Tusken Raiders. Like, you can't have Tatooine without Ban without Banthas and, and Tusken Raiders and, and Dubaks. And we already saw some Jawas earlier in the season on different planets, so I'll forgive not having a Jawas. Um, but uh, the you know. As soon as Toro looks through those macro binoculars, like Luke did in A New Hope, and and looks at the, the the Banthas and the Tusken Raiders off in the distance, I instantly knew like, oh, we're gonna have a Tusken Raider show up in the viewfinder, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Okay, but I mean you have to, right? Yeah, but you have to. That but they did, my... but with a twist, which I really yeah. appreciated, because the Mandalorian look like 
the the Mandalorian's talking with uh, Toro, and he says, "You know, yeah, why don't you tell them to keep their distance yourself?" And Toro pulls down the Mac binoculars, looks to his left, and then he sees the Tuscans have already been snuck up and are are standing right next to him. Mm. Okay, and then we get so, the classic. Yeah, it was yeah. it was really well done. So, uh, so what did what did you guys think of that? I mean, this is the first time we've seen Tuscan Raiders not actually trying to kill somebody, but we actually saw somebody try and, well, not try. We saw the Mandalorian communicate with them. I really like that. It reminds me a lot of uh, Knights of the Old Republic, the original kind of uh, RPG where you go mm-hmm. to Tatooine and you, I mean, you get the choice of just killing them because they're, they're Tuscan Raiders. They're beasts. Vicious, mindless um, monsters. Yeah. Or you can negotiate with them and talk to them. And I, uh, obviously it's a little bit different, um, but I like that, you know, like, no, there's, they are very territorial. They certainly are aggressive, but they're not, they don't usually just instantly kill people. Yeah. They're not savages as we found out in this case, because no, yeah, they I'm can not- take the macro binoculars that were brand new because, Hey, they had to get payment somehow. And instead of giving them credits, give them the macro binoculars. And, and I love the negotiation is sign language yep. or a form of sign language. I don't think it is actual, uh, what is it? AS, American Sign Language, whatever the it's, standard it's, it's is. It's actually Tatooine Sign Language, TSL. There you go. Fine. Uh, but yes, I, just, I thought it was a really neat detail um, and just a very neat uh, inclusion. Yeah. And, and of course, the, 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 the Mandalorian's response, again, like I feel like every time he, he has these little one-liners to Toro, they're just brilliant, right? The Toro's like, those are, those are brand new. And Mandalorian's like, yep. They were. <laughs> it walks off. It's just so great. Um, yeah. and we even get a, a, a different twist on the Tusken Raider backstory too, where you know the the Mandalorian notes the Tusken Raiders just believe they're the locals, um, and that the the rest of the residents on the planet are just trespassing on on Tatooine, uh, trying to give some different different point of view, just a little different uh, sympathy toward the Tusken Raiders who we who typically you, see as like. The would you say from a certain point of view? Yes, that's that's true. Close enough. Uh, yeah, except from the Tuscaners, we usually see as the uh, uh, the attackers in, in, in most of the time. And, and to be fair, like they did kill, um, uh, um, uh, you know, Shmi Skywalker, Anakin's mom, and and uh, they did try to attack Luke and all this stuff too. So they're not they're not perfect people, but the, these two happen to be pretty friendly, which was nice. And they actually gave safe passage through the through the their territory in the dune sea yes yeah, so that brings us kind of to the next encounter they have in the dune sea where they find a dewback pulling along a uh oh some a dead bounty hunter and it gives them a another tracking fob clearly obviously also going after kind of the target okay so that's another interesting question does everybody get the same tracking fob and when it activates for that particular target or they're like for that target, there are like two tracking fobs or three tracking fobs because Baby Yoda had many tracking fobs. Right. And even yeah, as, I assume it's as many as they want. Yeah. And even chapter three, okay. like, there are many tracking the Mandalorian. There's as many as you as you want. And they clearly showed the current target's current position relative to yours. Maybe not direction, but at least proximity. Yeah. Proximity um, to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, I'd love to learn more about how these work, but they, they do I, find the tracking fob and. Uh, on this bounty hunter, unnamed, dead, clearly. Um, but I, I liked how 
Taro almost kept hoping that it was the the it was Fennec dead already. Like, you know, could we just be done with this mission? You know, that's Fennec, right? We can just pick her up and, and leave and get our bounty. You know, I was like, so easy, right? No. Does he really no. want to be a bounty hunter? He's just young and stupid. That's all. He's got a lot of money and he thinks he can have a cool job. It's the romance of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Be a bounty actually, hunter. See the universe. That is a very, very good way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, and then they continue on. Um, and uh, not just continue on. They're shot at. Well, it's a little bit later. They're not near the dewback when they originally get shot. No, they are. They're, I thought it had. No, it happens a little bit later. No, no. The Mandalorian, he starts walking away from the dewback. Oh, that's right. He takes the shot Fennec to the back. Snipes the I thought the dewback was much farther away because when they go back later. Yeah, it's because oh, he has well, a whole race. Yeah. Are you sure? I'm 100% sure. No, 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 sure. no. What happens is the Mandalorian goes back later to go get that dewback because they got. Um, right, they got Finnick. Yeah, I I, I, th- I thought that took a long time, which I took to mean it was really far away. No, I think the Dubak may have because like the Dubak had all night to travel. Because they that's true. Oh, that's right. Because they, yep, you're right. Because they are stuck there for a while. Right. Yep. You're right. So yeah, so he takes the shot in the back. In the which, Baskar. Which, uh, that Baskar could really take that hit. Oh, and it, again, the the physicality of the shot and the. I love seeing the damage to the armor kind of continue. Even though it holds up, mm-hmm. you see the black scorch marks, the carbon scoring, I guess it's yeah. probably called. Later, it's not so lucky, though. That that Beskar, it's pretty warped with the uh, when when uh, when Fennec actually shoots the Mandalorian off the swoop. Uh, so I'll be very interesting to see what he ends up doing with the Beskar later, if he gets it repaired or not. Um, but but yeah, he gets. He takes a shot, and they they end up having to, um, you know, kind of hunker down behind the dune all night as they wait for I, the, the twin suns to set. I do love the line where Toro's asking, uh, you know, oh man, how do how do I survive that? And he's like, oh, you know, you got it. Where's some Beskar? And he asks, oh, where? How do I get some Beskar? And he's like, oh, you don't. Yeah, he's like, what yeah. about how many Beskar? Nope. <laughs> Just that's right. Yeah, again, yeah, yeah. pure gold, There's, pure gold. What are you going to do? Yeah. And we get a nice reference to, you know, Fennec having the high ground. Uh, oh, my jeez. So, uh, <laughs> was that really necessary? It, well, in this case, it had to be said. It was true. It, it was true. And, and so I actually liked their, their plan. Basically, wait until night and then, uh, you know, attack when it's nice and dark. It's a little harder for Fennec to see and they can try to blind her. Yeah. Um, but before that, while they're waiting... Uh, you get another nice little moment where the Mandalorian is, they decide to take shifts or the Mandalorian decides to take shifts and tells Toro to, uh, to, to go take the first watch. And uh, while the Mandalorian is quote unquote sleeping, uh, Toro starts to like talk to the Mandalorian and kind of makes fun of him for sleeping on the job and doesn't like start spinning his blaster and, you know, making some like, you know, guns up moves and uh, the whole time, the Mandalorian is watching him, but just not saying a thing. And it looks like he's asleep. And again, the the line at the end, like "You done?" Just brilliant, brilliant writing on, yep. on so many of yeah. these, so many of these scenes. Uh, it's just great. Yeah, so, Stephen, what what are your thoughts on the uh, the attack uh, when they actually set out to attack Fennec? Yeah, so I mean, they they've waited till night. 
And now the kind of the plan is they're going to ride together on the swoop bikes uh, and fire off uh, in, you know, each one will fire a flare in turn to blind Fennec and prevent her from, you know, getting a good shot on them, uh, which, you know, not a not a terrible plan. Um, maybe w- would have worked better with someone who's a little bit more experienced than Toro. But uh, I love the shot of them just charging out over the dune. It's like, OK, here we go. Yep. Let's let's see how this works. And it worked. Worked very well. Did mm-hmm. keep her distracted to a certain point. No, well, it, it, I mean, it, it kept her distracted enough. She She's able to take out the Mandalorian, and that makes her feel comfortable. And so Fennec and, and her start to... Uh, oh, it's, it's not just that it makes her feel comfortable. It's when she's blinded is when Toro makes it the rest of the way. Right, right. right. And so then, you know, Which, he, he surprises her. Again, the... The detail is very, very good, and yeah, he gets the gets the drop on her and uh, promptly messes it up. Well, because he's he's not a very good bounty hunter. He's a newbie. What do you expect? He's gonna sit there and take the drop on somebody and take him out with one shot. Yeah, eh, it's his first time. And you know, their, their scuffle is is pretty good. Uh, I thought you know nothing, nothing to complain about. Um, yeah, but eventually she just starts. She she gets the upper hand. She starts choking him. And, you know, he, he can't breathe. And all of a sudden, the Mandalorian just calmly stands above Fennec, comes out, comes out of nowhere, and <laughs> just thanks, thanks Toro for the distraction. Uh, and, of course, Fennec instantly surrenders. Yeah, because I, I like that she recognizes that she's not going to pull a fast one on the Mandalorian. Yeah. She can't. You know, he, he's standing over her with a blaster. What's well, so do? is Toro, and she didn't worry about that. Well, that well, point, though, yeah. She although she did no have, I think, a knife that time or uh, something to throw to distract. But Okay, but but look at it this way. An assassin against a first-time bounty hunter. Would you be, you know, thinking your odds are probably in your favor with a first-time bounty hunter compared to a Mandalorian? Yeah. True. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, also, a side note: we finally get a name for the world from chapters one and three, <clears throat> where the bounty hunter um, uh, enclave is, and the client lives, and that's Navarro. So uh, finally, we we get a, a name for that planet. We're still missing the name of the planet, the first snowy planet where they um, they they pick up the inig- uh, the initial bounty, uh, the Mithral. But aside from that, we now have names for most of the planets, which is nice. You know, just have a little patience and everything comes in due time. But that then paves the way for my, probably my favorite scene of the episode. Um, And that's the, uh, the, the, the point where Fennec tries to turn Toro. So the Mandalorian goes off and, in search of the dewback, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen. Yep. And because they need to, so the, obviously one of the speeders is broken. They need something in order to get three mm. people. Mm. Uh, and I think some one of them remarks like, "Ah, oh, it's a little two three on a speeder is a little on the tight side." Yeah, that, I mean that's not going to work clearly. And so Toro, he does he doesn't want to leave, and he doesn't trust the Mandalorian, so he stays with Fennec while the Mandalorian goes and retrieves the retrieves the dewback and um i realized you know maybe what what i what took him so long is that he the mandalorian also went on foot so he was searching on foot for the dewback and i really appreciate the moment where the scene where he actually used um 
his viewfinder to to kind of find the heat mm, signature, the heat signature. Back, so he knew the direction to head in. Um, and so he he goes off and searches the dewback, and it takes him all night. And the morning we get this beautiful uh, uh, morning sunrise, uh, and Fennec, you know, they're still they're still waiting, and Fennec just starts to try to turn Toro, and it's almost like Palpatine and Anakin, but not quite so you know, uh, deliciously evil where we learn that Fennec had a rendezvous in, in Mos Espa, Anakin's hometown. And she offers to pay Toro double the price on her head. If he, he takes her there, but you know, obviously he doesn't care about the money. And that's where she starts to, to convince Toro to betray the Mandalorian. Right. And she's like, Hey, you, you know, there's this Mandalorian and he, he shot up, Navarro and betrayed the bounty hunters guild and stole this high value client. You you should you, you should get him instead. And if you don't care about the money of his best car, that's worth a lot. Like if you turn him in, you're gonna be legendary. Yeah, you'll be a hero. That's, I do feel like they use the word legendary one too many times in this yep, conversation. One hundred percent. But I yeah I she nails exactly what Toro is here looking for. Yeah, and I think in this case, because he was so young and this would get him into the guild, she really pushed him by saying that so many times because it gave him that big head to hopefully at a certain point she could get a drop on him. Yeah. I would imagine that was the case. Right. And so then, you know, she's he starts to approach her almost looking like he's going to unlock her binders, her handcuffs. And then, boom, he shoots her dead. And it's just, it's so great because I wasn't expecting her to die that quickly. I don't Neither know about you guys. Like, yep. given the big deal they made I, about her, I was expecting I, her to stay around. I I liked her armor a lot. I thought she was a good character. I it does sadden me that she's probably dead. Mm-hmm. But really, though, I mean, in Star Wars, uh, some cases you never know. Whatever yeah. happened at the end, you might not know. So we'll see. I I really enjoyed though how a lot of these characters that were originally teased when the show started. We're actually not getting uh, that much of them, and I, I kind of like that. You know, it's 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 unexpected. There's these characters like Toro, who we knew nothing about in the run up to um, the the series release. Like we didn't even know he existed as a character until the episode aired. Um, and he has a fairly major role in this episode. And mm. there are characters like Fennec Shand, who is a very cool character, and uh, Ming Na Wen played her really well. Um, who was you know advertised more early on and she's like not in at all same thing with uh like grief carga he's in a, a little bit more and the clients in it a little bit more but they're not it's only like you know two three episodes right um uh car dune as well so far only one episode there's three episodes left in this in the in the season well, you can look at it this way. Is it more important to have these, let's say, quote unquote, guest stars playing these really cool characters? Or is it more important to have the main character, the Mandalorian, be the one that outshines these other big name characters? Because it's really revolved around the Mandalorian. It's nice to have these characters, these, these great actors coming in and playing it. But to me, it kind of makes sense. You don't want all it, these actors overshadowing exactly. your main character. Yeah, It does kind of remind me of like, some of those older 70s and 80s TV shows where each episode you had the one big guest star. Um, I don't know. I think it works. 
Yeah, but thankfully it doesn't feel like it's like, oh, here's the big guest star, and then he disappears. Because right. some of the big actors or actresses, they're only in it for a few minutes. And other, the mm. you know, the, the, the tiny ones that we never hear, hear about are in it a lot. And I just like how it's very unexpected. I mean, looking at the marketing going in, you might have assumed that, you know, the show was going to star, you know, uh, obviously Pedro Pascal's The Mandalorian, and then Carl Weathers' is Grief Karga, and... Um, uh, and you know Gina Carano's Cara Dune and Giancarlo Esposito is Moff Gideon and that they were going to be like the main cast almost and, mm-hmm. and you know IG-11 was going to be a big player and they're all yeah. so such tiny roles but in, in such great roles as well I, I just like how they're doing that yeah I agree um yeah, and then it just we kind of takes us into the close where the Mandalorian returns to uh Docking Bay 35, knowing, I think, that uh, Toro has betrayed him. I have to know, right? Because he, he saw he saw the he saw Fennec's dead body mm-hmm. on the ground yeah. when he were he got there and Fennec was already gone. Like clearly he didn't care about turning her in. Uh, and the Mandalorian leaves her there too. And uh, we get this, yeah. this you know, this nice action scene at the end where Sure enough, Toro has kidnapped Peli and and Baby Yoda, and uh, you know the Mandalorian starts to surrender, and Peli uh, goes to cuff the Mandalorian, and and instead notices that you know he has a flash charge in his hand, and he used it to blind Toro, shooting him, uh, and and thankfully not killing the Baby Yoda who was in his arms. Hey, Although he does take quite the time. fall. Yeah, yeah, that like, was uh, my and... initial reaction. Is oh wow, that was uh baby yoda okay he just fell off the ramp with him yeah i'm i'm sure he's okay i mean he he can probably use the force to put a little bubble around him and bounce i have to imagine something yeah because like it looked like he could have gotten hurt but thankfully he was just hiding behind the barrels he was totally fine um one thing i was wondering like as the mandalorian leaves he hands Pelly a, a, a significant sum of money where did he get that money is it the Didn't, money he pulled it off of finnick that's what I thought. Whatever it was, he pulled it out of Fennec. Oh, maybe Fennec had it on her. Because they didn't turn in Fennec for the reward. Not, not Fennec. Uh, Toro. Oh, Toro? He had it on Toro. Sorry, uh, my bad. That may have been it. Yeah, yeah. I think... I I wondered that at first as well, and I took it as, oh yeah, Toro, like we see, is pretty flush with credits. Yep. Yeah. Some... Yeah, because remember, he had those new macro binoculars. Everything on him was probably well, he's new. He's got the macro binoculars. He goes and buys two swoop bikes. They just work great, though. Let's be honest. Them. He kind of, he kind of skimped on the swoops. <laughs> no, they thought that the swoops were fine. They, they were. They were pretty even decent. Toro, even Toro wasn't happy. He said they're not Corellian swoops. You know, he's like, hey. Oh uh, well, yeah. I mean, I took that more of a. <laughs> he's a snob. Right. He is. He is. Oh. Look, if I was back home on Coruscant, I would have Corellian soups. Not it, these. It's like, oh, junks. You, I can only rent a Mercedes. Man. Like, you couldn't get me the Tesla? I don't know. That, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> obviously, I don't know high quality cars, but. But either way. He got the uh, money from Toro. Yeah. And, and Peli got, she got her, her reward for taking care of Baby Yoda because she, true to her word, she took care of. A little guy and the Mandalorian seems to have even overpaid Peli again, showing the his his generosity. And he takes the uh, he takes the Razor Crest and departs as Peli orders her pit droids to dump Toro's body in Beggar's Canyon. Nobody looks in there. No. 
friend of the show, uh, uh, Sean, noted in, in, in his recap uh, that uh, maybe uh, he's dumping the body in Beggar's Canyon for the, the Womp Rats to to eat up maybe oh so you know oh i can i'd like that yeah i like that. i think womp rats would like that a lot as well look if you want to when you kill womp rats or i shouldn't say kill when you uh use womp rats as often as we do you know you need to keep a healthy population and that's part yep. of making sure they're fed it's very important yeah yep protect against no womp rats the, uh, were harmed in the making of the show the insects yet or something <laughs> wait, wait, wait whoa no womp rats were harmed in the making of the of, of the Mandalorian, maybe, oh, but okay, many okay. womp rats were harmed podcast. in the making of the no, podcast. This, no, no, I didn't mean the podcast. Yeah, that's what I thought Stephen meant. I meant the podcast. Well, yet yeah, we haven't gotten to our ratings yet. Well, okay, but we haven't got. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right, so let's, wait, before wait, we get to the ratings, we need to yeah. talk about the end. There, yeah, yeah, that's big, what I was going to say. We have to, we have to talk about the ending before we get to the ratings. The big moment. So who do you think it is? Forget it. So what? Let's. No, I just want to jump. Okay, fine. So we see, uh, you know, armored boots approach Fennec's body, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, we get some, some uh, a beeping of some sort. We get a, uh, uh, we hear some spurs, but like who, who could have, who could it be? Who is standing over Fennec's body at the very end? And why would they show that? So it's something important. Okay, my son's got a theory on this, and he was going nuts. Okay. Ever since you saw the episode. He you want me to say it? Yeah. Yeah, go for this, it. This is okay. the time to theorize. Speculate his, away. His theory, not mine, his. His theory is it is Boba Fett in the thirteen thirteen armor. Not his original armor, but the thirteen thirteen armor that was supposed to be for the game. Hmm. That's his theory. He claims regardless it's Boba Fett. I've seen some speculation that it could be Boba. I've Do you think they bring Boba, Boba into the show, though? But didn't we already have that? Didn't we have him in the Enclave? Somebody said he was spotted in the Enclave no. in one of the earlier episodes. Oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't think, think so. That's another okay, Mandalorian. Then, then, then I was wrong on reading that. And and don't trust some of these websites out there. They're all clickbait. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. And especially like if they're on Tatooine, Boba Fett was last seen in the Sarlacc. <clears throat> right? So, Okay, but remember... Is, okay, wait a minute. Wasn't there a special edition in which George had him fall and then they special editioned him out of it or no, am no, i wrong he, he no, no, fell. No, i don't think special edition ever changed boba fett's fate right boba oh, fett has been, i thought it was it's just I the book. boba fett has been saved from the sarlacc uh many different times and many different novels and in many things like ways. that um so here's uh, the biggest argument for it being boba fett is boba fett is kind of an interesting an interesting Mandalorian in that he's not really a Mandalorian. And some of the old legends books kind of dealt with this in a, a lot more detail, but Boba Fett kind of grew up, you know, Jango Fett was a true Mandalorian, you know, grew up as part of the, the group as we see in the seasons comics, I think they were called. Um, but Boba's raised alone. He doesn't. And, you know, we know uh, prior to episode two, he's raised with his father on Camino. Post episode two, we know from Clone Wars that he kind of runs around with a different group of bounty hunters. It's, I could see a very interesting story when you have the Mandalorian versus the, but not really a Mandalorian. So that's, I think that's the argument if it's going to be Boba Fett. I, I don't know if it is though. Yeah, I, I, th- uh, I think you're, yeah. That's a good one. Like, 
I, I feel like they, I mean, we know there was supposed to be a Boba Fett movie originally, and it kind of became yep. The Mandalorian, but I don't know if they're going to introduce Boba Fett at this point. Like, there's only three episodes left. Maybe they show him briefly, but that just seems like a lot to show so late in the game, and that opens up a whole other can of worms when we still have so many other plot threads that we know but, they're going to be dealing with. But let's say, theoretically, they show him. They don't have to really use him heavily until season two. Uh, so you could I, say it could be a tease. I mean, they'll use him a bit here. They have to. Again, I've always said, you call attention to something, you better use it. If it is I, him, they can use him, but use him more for like the main antagonist to the Mandalorian in season two. So I think there's two options. One is it's a character from another episode, like maybe the next episode, mm -hmm. like Moff Gideon. I think that's who, who is, probably is. I that would be my I put my money there, I think, in that it's just it'll be a direct lead in. This is just kind of meant to be a tease that he's being followed and leads us into the next episode of okay. we, that, that makes we sense. understand he's being followed and it's we've gotten a little bit of precursor to it. Um, another possibility is we get uh I don't know, maybe it's a Marvel influence where the next couple episodes all end with a tease. Uh, maybe each time revealing a little bit more until we either get in the finale or um, a bigger look in the finale where it's actually the, the plot of the finale, which is the reveal of another big character like Boba Fett. Mm -hmm. um, given how they've gone thus far, I feel like they like their um, self-contained episodes. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to lead us directly into the next one. I don't think it's Boba Fett. I, well, I think so. If too. that's what you're thinking, that yeah. might work. The the another theory I've seen bounced around is that maybe it's Cobb Vanth from the Aftermath trilogy, the kind of like the the mysterious uh, Boba Fett successor, you know, who tries to grab get Boba's armor. Um, Not a chance. I don't think they're doing it though. I think it's probably Moff Gideon. That's my personal personal. So if they theory. in order to do Cobb Vanth, you now have to explain. Oh, the character that's very true. Boba Fett's armor. That's not Boba yeah. Fett. And at which point people say, what? Yeah, like, and then you're going to have to no explain the Aftermath trilogy. so hard to explain. Oh, no. Oh, you don't even have to. It's just, it's more, for a show especially that likes few words, you're not going to put in a character that looks like an iconic Star Wars character and then spend time explaining to people why it's not the character you think it is. That's no. just ridiculous. Yeah, I don't I don't think they'll, they'll end up doing that. The only way we'll find out is when the next episode drops. Yeah, which is not, not too Friday. far, not too far uh, off. Um, nope. So I, I, I'm curious, like overall, how did you guys feel about the level of nostalgia in the in this in this episode? Because I've, I've seen a lot of criticism online about it, but also a lot of praise. Where, where do you guys fall on this spectrum? Stephen, I, go first. I think it was uh, a hair too much. And I think it was specifically the scene with Toro in Han's spot and aping Han's exact uh, positioning. Interesting. That was the only piece. Hmm. That That's the one I think it was, it was a little bit too much. The rest, like having it be Tatooine, I thought that was fine. Hmm. Having it be the, even that cantina, I thought worked. That didn't bother me. But having it, having it be exactly Han is just a little, was, I thought was a little much. Interesting. And the rest, I like, 
the Dune Sea, the Dubak, like I thought all that worked fine. Like those are the things that are established as part of, you know, this is what Tatooine looks like. Mm. Tom? You know what? It didn't bother me at all from the nostalgia point of view. If there was, let's say, Cantina Band was playing. If there was more people in in Mos Eisley. If there was, you know, no droids inside the Cantina. You know, um, when the when the Tuscan Raiders when when the Tuscan Raiders were discovered, they actually did attack and fight. I thought there was enough there of nostalgia that kept it nostalgic, but I don't think it was overbearing. If there was, like I mentioned, all that stuff added onto it, then it would have been, you're hitting me over the head with it. I know it's Tatooine and nothing's changed. For me, it changed. I'll I'll actually say, I feel like, uh, Tom, thank you for pointing this out. Not a problem. The the droids in the cantina was like the, a perfect example, I think of how, how to do it right. Yes. No one like if you had never seen Star Wars before and this is your first exposure, the fact that there are droids in the cantina means nothing. Nothing. Right. Right. I it's the type of detail when you're a star fan, like, ah, that's a that's a neat detail. Something has changed. It shows right. how Tatooine has evolved and you know, since we last saw it. That's an awesome way to do a reference, and it's what Mandalorian has done generally very, very well thus like this entire time. Yeah, and, and that's that's why this episode all the references to Tatooine never bothered me. It but, was Tatooine, but it changed. And that's why the having the Han Solo pose did bother me is because the Han Solo pose is not like that. It's very much a, hmm. uh, I don't know, gratuitous. Like it's specifically trying to call a back wink, to a wink, specific nod, thing. Nod. Exactly. Yeah. Now I get it. Okay. It it feels, and yes, it it does fit uh, Toro's character too, but. It's a little too intentional, I guess. And I and I think it's made worse in some ways by the fact that you're already doing so much in that scene. If it were Toro doing it in a different cantina, yeah, that's fine. You know, it's a different cantina. It looks different. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that's the Han Solo pose. But okay. it's we're in Chalmun's cantina. We're on Tatooine. It's the same booth. It's the same pose. It's okay. It was a little bit, I think, too much for what uh that was the one thing I thought there was too much. I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback that. I did not pick up on the pose. But if he had a partner, then I probably would have picked up more on that. Because real realize in that booth, it wasn't just Han Solo. At a certain point, there was a Chewbacca. True. So if if he had that partner there, then that probably would have been too gratuitous for me. Hmm. Because it was a definite setup. Yeah. So I- Overall, I, I actually didn't I didn't mind the the level reference. I thought it was cool. I loved seeing uh, all of the 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 references and the way they they blend everything together. Would I want in every episode? No, but it was nice to like when you come to Tatooine. It makes sense that the place you would go would be the Mos Eisley Cantina, and right. presumably you know Tatooine like. There's a you know there's not a, a lot of it's it's sparsely populated. We know there's Mos Espa and Mos Eisley. And there's a few other cities as well, but like you'll probably end up in in you know Moss Eisley, and you'll end up at the docking bay because it's probably not a lot of uh, you know it's not it's probably like one spaceport, and yeah, you go to the local example, cantina. Like it makes sense, and like you said, yeah. there's enough changes that it'd be like you know. if he landed in docking bay ninety four, right? Yeah, like oh, that's 
that was a little bit more than I think I needed. That's true. Yeah, that was a little too gratuitous. There's at least 94 docking bays, so like, you know. what are the odds you hit the same one? Yeah, but it's similar enough to give you that sense of ah, this is, you know, exactly. Chewy, we're home. So I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Tom, what what would you rate this episode overall? Well, I'm giving this one an eight point five. I really enjoyed the episode. You know, it's. I liked it. I've said everything I said within the within the podcast, so I'm just going to go straight to my Womp Rat rating because I want to take my Womp Rat rating before you guys do. My eight point five Womp Rats are the Womp Rats that actually had a feast on Toro. So when it was dropped off in Baker's Canyon, those 8.5 Womp Rats ate very well. Poor, poor Toro. Well, you know, a Womp Rat's got to eat. <laughs> huh? When you put it that way. Yeah, you got you to put it that from that point of view. They got to eat. Steven? So, so for me, I still don't think this episode reached the heights of the first three um but like we talked about the dialogue felt i think it was the dialogue but it felt still a little bit off um it didn't quite fire excuse me on all cylinders like i would have hoped it would have um but i definitely enjoyed it more than the previous episode um and i thought it just the characters were generally stronger and i i enjoyed it more um i especially enjoyed hating on uh toro uh <laughs> it was a character i'd I didn't like his character when he showed up and I felt gratified when I see him go down like the punk kid that he is. Um, so yeah, so that's, uh, I will give it, uh, I think an eight out of 10 feels about right to me. Like overall solid episode. Um, just not as good as we, I think not as good as I know they can do. Um, and I got to think of something to do with my womp rats. Um, well, you know, at, in the old legends universe and even in, you know, aftermath, there are many pretenders to the throne of Boba Fett. Um, and I'm here to tell you it is not in fact Boba Fett who is in that suit of armor at the end, but it is eight womp rats who have banded together and are standing on top of each other to become the most fearsome bounty hunter in the galaxy. Also known as womp Fett. Oh, don't that's hey, that's a good William. one. We're going to find that out next episode. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I again, I like this episode it was filled with nostalgia. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, some some good moments. Great music again. And, and some cinematography was, was excellent. Um, I agree that it wasn't necessarily the same highs as other parts of the season thus far. But I, again, I enjoyed it, <clears throat> you know, better than uh, than last week's. And um Overall, it's you know, The Mandalorian is still, still one of the the best shows you could be watching right now. Oh, and absolutely! So I'm gonna give it uh, eight and a half Womp Rats out of ten. My eight and a half Womp Rats are gonna be traded to the Tusken Raiders for safe passage oh. to our next review. There you go. Oh, so is that a lean into what we're reviewing next? Well, uh, you, not fun, that fun fact, guys. By the way, but before we do that, uh, a a veteran of Star Wars Rebels, Steve Bloom, the voice of Garazeb Aurelios from uh, the Rebels, was actually the voice of the spaceport operator in, uh, in the Mandalorian. Tell. That's cool. And 
you know who else he played? He played a character on tonight's episode of Star Wars Resistance. So, Tom, what's uh, okay. which episode are we reviewing tonight? Well, tonight we're going to be reviewing Resistance Season 2, Episode 10, Kaz's Curse. This was directed by Brad Rao, and it was written by Eugene Sun. Now, in this episode, a, pirate's, a pirate curses Kaz, causing him danger at every turn. Kaz is soon forced to seek Mika Gray for help. But Kaz's curse gets worse when the Gavorian Death Gang appears. The you know what? Death Gang. Filler mm. episode. Um, this is just this is just what Kaz's life is, right? Yeah. Like they talk about this as being Kaz's curse. I'm pretty sure this is just a normal day for Kaz. It, you know that that's the funny thing. Like as I was watching this, I was like, is is this a curse or is like it's just Kaz? You know that it yep. literally just is. I don't know. Uh, it, it, this episode was yeah. um, it, kind of kind of frustrating. Well, I, I think well, what what made it frustrating for me to watch was it basically, like you said, it's Kaz, but it was Kaz almost magnified throughout the whole episode. It wasn't just a little bit here and then move the plot forward. And then maybe one more time, and then he was fine from that point. It seemed like almost every turn, there was something bad happening to him. Yeah. And you would think at this point, the character would grow. I mean, at the end of the episode, I think he did. But it just it's a point where it's like, it's almost a one-trick gag that I think now you've got to push past it. Yeah, I mean... Curses are kind of part and parcel with pirates, and so I'm sure they were like, "Oh, let's do like a Pirates of the Caribbean style uh, curse episode." Curse episode. But there's ways of doing it, and this, if they had more time and stretched it out, maybe it would have worked. But it seemed like every time there was something happening to him, it was more rushed because there was always something, and then something on top of that, and something on top of that, and then something on top of that. Well, and it just went from one extreme to the other. So the yep. episode starts with Kaz playing this game against a bunch of the pirates, a bunch of pirates, including Leoz, played by Steve Bloom. And um, he's, like, got this insane winning streak, which, you know, could be beginner's luck or, you know, could could maybe really have happened. But he's, like, rolling these dice, and it's, 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 it's just over the top to the point where, like, he's rolling the dice and it's bouncing off of people's heads and still landing, like, perfectly. And, and then on top of that, they landed on top of each other at one point. Yeah, it's just a little, a, a little much. Um, and Leoz, of course, the pirate, not a fan of this because Kaz keeps taking all of money, all of the all of his money, including his his shoe, his boot. And so uh, Leoz basically places a curse on Kaz by licking Kaz's forehead. Ugh. Gross. Yeah, very gross scene for sure. But but it gets gross later when he uses the full hand. Realize full hand. Yeah, and like slowly down the face through the episode. Clearly, Liaz is um he's faking this, right? He doesn't actually believe in the curse. At one point, Kaz uh, runs into him, and he and uh, uh, he and Greville are laughing uh, about how Kaz believed the curse, but. 
you know, in typical Niku fashion, Niku falls for it. And and Kaz, even though he insists he doesn't believe in it, he totally does. Uh, and all of a sudden, he starts seeing these things and, and kind of get, gets this confirmation bias where uh, he starts seeing things happen and he automatically attributes it to the curse, right? Lights flicker. It's the curse. You know, he accidentally throws a cup across the room and it lands on top of Pirate Gork's head. It's the curse. Uh, you know, he tries to order some stew and they're all out. It's the curse. Uh, you know, uh, Glem get, gets runs some trouble with a uh, with a, um, a Gorg, and the cart runs into Cat. It's the curse. He trips. It's the curse. You know. Okay. The the one that frustrated me when he was in his ship and the sea was rising. That took me a while to realize what was going on when he was inside the ship. And that was really your seat was rising. Couldn't your droid just take over for you? And then when he's trying to sit there and use uh, his control stick, the control control stick breaks. Okay. That's either poor workmanship on your part. And your droid couldn't fly the ship for you. I don't know. Yeah. I, I know they're trying to show like everything's going wrong and oh my gosh, he went from having this perfect luck to being, horribly cursed and and stuff and like he's now missing his shots um and uh, attracting the guavian death gang uh, accidentally but it would work better if this wasn't just kaz yeah maybe that's it oh kaz messed up and was pressed against the you know top of his window well it sounds like kaz well and okay the curses were also very simple and almost juvenile like oh ran into this thing oh ran out of soup oh mm-hmm. lights flickering it's just it was a but little eh, off i i think i think what pushed it even further was niku always overreacting when something happened yep right and always pointing out pointing it out it's I mean, like that doesn't surprise me well yeah but but there's a certain point in which that got old doesn't surprise me, but it got old. It is Niku's personality style to believe in, in curses and, and stuff. And again, I liked how Kaz tried not to believe in it, but still deep down did. And, and um, uh, Mika Gray even calls him on it in, in this episode. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a little, it was a little weird, you know, eventually he goes to, to to Mika for for help and she gives him this this lucky charm or a talisman and uh he he very clearly like he he, again he's trying to put on a a front and say he doesn't believe it and Mika notes that I I was actually really like this she notes that a large part of the curse comes down to how much Kaz believes in it and from what it seems he definitely believes more than he's letting on which is 100% 100% correct. Uh, and that's why she gives him this this fake talisman to make him think that, you know, he, he may be protected from the, the curse. It'll bring him good luck. It's a good luck charm. Because at one point, she brought something about good luck charms or something. And that's when she handed him this thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fascinatingly, at one point in the script, the curse was actually supposed to be real. And uh, Mika was going to remove it from Kaz but tell him that it was fake just so that he, you know, she didn't have to deal with the implications of, of all that. I'm glad they didn't go that route. I'm glad they kept I, it. 
you know, a fake I think that would have been weirder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. Yeah, that would have put it more I, over I the top. I don't think it would have been good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. The, the whole thing, like, eventually he gets the talisman and the, uh, you know, he, he, he goes into space, the space battle, which we'll touch on in a moment, um, without the talisman. And then he, uh, he realizes that, oh my gosh, you know, maybe, maybe I am okay without a talisman and, uh, without the, my, my good luck charm. And he kind of is able to overcome his superstition for the most part. So I appreciated that and, and kind of the, the the lesson there that, you know, it's just a superstition and there's nothing to there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, there's nothing to see here. But how they went about it was just a little a little bit much. What did you guys think of the subplot with the, the Guavian death gang and trying to travel through their their airspace? I thought only, it was okay. Yeah. And, and it seemed like the only reason why they were in there was the threat of, we were going to turn you into the first order because other than that, what really was going on with the Colossus, the way it was, where were they going? What it, it was such a filler episode. You're just like, what was the point of this episode to take it back to the first order? Oh, let's bring in the Guavian death gang and say, Hey, we're going to take over your ship and then we're going to turn you all over to the first order. That was the only tie. It's like, what, what's moving barely. this story forward? Yeah. And yeah. then again, <laughs> barely. You, you bring up a good point. Like, I, I really wish we had a good sense of, you know, where the Colossus is headed and what the, what they're trying to do. We know they're trying to repair the ship, but like, uh, and they're probably, you know, presumably on the run from the first order. But the first order hasn't right. found them yet. So if they're just sitting in space, like why are they flying around? Are they are they flying around just to try to outrun the first order and constantly be on the move, or are they? Or, are know, they trying to find to at least just... the resistance where right. the resistance ended? Uh, but we haven't heard. Are they anything in contact with with General Organa? Are they in contact with no, you know, they're Poe not anymore. I don't think they're in contact with with. with yeah, Leia. and that that's and the thing. I mean, about their it's like, search for the resistance. Right, and and that's the thing. The the only thing run because the first order wants that refueling station because they don't want the resistance to get it. But there there's no there's no tension between the first order and the Colossus right now because. The first order is not jumping in and out to say, "Oh, we found him. Let's go send some ties to go destroy it." And boom, the Colossus jumps away. Yeah, so there's, there's not a lot of that tension, as you were saying, and there's not a good sense of like there's no progress, right? Yeah, or, or, or what's even the objective? Like, even if you have these other stories happening, uh, you know, in the background, like, what's the objective for this ultimately? And I'll say, I think. Because this is what the first season of Resistance was like as well. I think what makes it worse, though, is we got a taste of a more plot-driven story in the kind of last couple episodes of season one. Yep. We got to see like, oh, this is what these characters look like when they're driving towards something, when there's there's actual stakes. Yeah, there's Uh, an end goal. And we hoped that season two of Resistance would do that, too. And, and it we've started just been, to, and then it didn't. It floundered. It, it's it's right now. It's right now like the Colossus, trying to find a place to go. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even there, they don't talk about that. They don't talk about the ship really being damaged unless it happened. And this is the what I call like the Star Trek effect. That's maybe not the right thing to compare Star Wars to. But it's the it is. It's the, you know, our ship is in danger. We're, we need supplies because that's the plot of this episode. Right. Don't worry. If the ship needs us to have missiles, we are for sure going to have plenty of missiles. If we need to have fuel, oh, yeah, we can make as many jumps as we need to this episode. Ah, this week, we're out of fuel. It just, there's no overarching connective tissue to the story anymore. Yeah. 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 And I feel like they, they, I know they can do it. That's the thing. Like, I know they can do it. They've, they've, they've done it before in other shows. They've done it in parts of this show. Um, but exactly. it just feels like they're often treading water uh, with with like I'm okay having an episode like um, uh, like uh, the gunslinger in the Mandalorian where, mm-hmm. you know, or, or 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 sanctuary where in both of those episodes. Sure, they're not necessarily moving the plot forward, but the Mandalorian is looking for sanctuary and he goes on a side mission or the Mandalorian is shot down and he needs to repair his ship. Right, and he goes on a on a bounty hunt. Those things are progressing the story mm. forward. Versus this is like, um, for some unknown reason, they're still s- traveling through space. We don't know where they're going or what their objective even is. Like we know the Mandalorian is trying to s- survive these bounty hunters and figure out what's going on with the, the 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 child. The Colossus is off going somewhere. For some reason, we don't know about. In theory, they probably want to catch up with the Resistance, but they haven't talked about that in really since the beginning of the season when they yeah too long you know uh there's a whole subplot with with uh with with tam that we know is going on but they've only touched on that in one episode since the very beginning so they're they're, they haven't really done much with that either uh and we don't know what their what their objective is what they're going we only know all we know is that the colossus is damaged occasionally and the first order is after them but but like what's their ultimate goal they need leadership and doza and yeager from what we can tell, are not really providing that aside from trying to protect everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's like the what I want to see more of Tam. I mean, I think right now, if this is what they're going to do with the Colossus, turn the story over to the First Order. You'll probably get a better story out of that because you at least have Tam over there, and you can see the inner workings of the First Order. You know what their drive is. Their drive is to take over the galaxy. Their drive is to find the Colossus. Their drive is to get rid of the resistance. Yep. Exactly. So it's yeah, it's almost like you want to just take this episode and let's say, hey, this episode eleven, let's take it to the first order from this point to the end. I don't know. Yeah. Although you gotta give some credit to the fight scene within the asteroid field with the Guavian Death Gang and the Aces. At least that was some kind of flying, and that was something to watch. Yeah, that was that was cool. I liked seeing the 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 Colossus blasting the asteroids, and the, and the the fight scene as the Colossus was trying to exit the asteroid field and get on the other side of space before the Guavian Death Gang attacks. That was that was nice. Um, you know, some 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 fun action there. It, it seemed like there was a it was a little bit um, empty of a space battle. Like I feel like there were only four or five, maybe six Guavian Death Gang ships. Relatively mm-hmm. small size against a giant Colossus and the Aces, um, yep. so the threat didn't feel quite big enough. But right, because also, really, did the Aces take any kind of damage other than you know, Kaz's ship? But 
just before this fight. But you saw Melchi the Guavian take most of the hits, especially when it came in the asteroids, but taking kind of damage and see like one limp back to the Colossus. So, yeah. But, you yeah. know, eventually, well, Stephen. No, go ahead. Yeah, and then the you know this the episode ends with a little bit of that uh, additional spooky as the lights continue to have issues uh, on the Colossus. Could be the curse, or you know it's the Colossus which for some reason is never repaired. Um, but yeah, that kind of I feel like that sums up the episode. Are you guys ready for ratings? Yeah, I, I think yep. so. I mean, it was fairly. I don't know. It was okay. It was not my favorite uh, episode. I tend to be a little less into the curse episodes anyway, for whatever reason. Um, in something like Pirates of the Caribbean, I feel like it really works because it, you know, maybe because it gives a little more time to breathe in the plot and everything is, it just fits the the style a bit better. Uh, it, it felt a little bit out of place here. Yeah. But, you know, I, uh, so what, do you, what would you give it? <sighs> I I I like the space battle. Uh, I thought the the rest. I liked how they actually didn't make the curse real. I, I appreciated that. Um, and it's interesting now how Mika Gray is playing a bit more of a of a role in the in the series. Although she's like just the local uh, the local fortune teller, so she's not doesn't seem to have much of a job other than that. And it seemed like she was more than a fortune teller when they picked her up she's more of an archaeologist and, and i don't really feel like they're they're not the using same. that part of her her background at all anyway um you know overall I, i'd probably give it five womp rats out of out of ten it was average um you know there's the, also the other subplot with bulls of gruel going to get his fortune and thinking that he's gonna die being eaten by uh gorgs uh, you know, from the inside out and, and, and stuff. And again, I, I like how Mika is clearly, she doesn't believe what she's on. She's saying, cause she's not telling anyone enough detail. You know, it's like, like they usually do, right? They, they give you just enough that you can apply it to your own life without being too specific. So that it can, you know, realistically come true. And they're like, Oh my gosh, they were right. And no, they just used a couple mm-hmm. of good tricks to, to get you to believe it. Um, but yeah, so I, I, overall, five Womp Rats out of ten, um, and uh, my five Womp Rats, well, they're uh, they're going to have some uh, Gorgs eat them from the inside out. Cool. Oh, gross. Tom? Well, I'm going to give my reading. I'm giving the episode a five. Um, I'm, giving it, I'm giving it a five because of the space battle. My five Womp Rats, they were the ones that were actually inside the Guavian uh, spaceships. So, yeah, they were the ones that were flying it, and when the Aces destroyed them, oh well. Okay. And Very Tom nice. is currently on the run Five from the Guavian death game. Yeah, they're on the run. Um, Steven? Um, I'll give it a 6, I think, out of 10, which is probably still a little bit higher than it deserves. Um, but, you know, I just... I, I For some reason, don't I, I don't know why, I got a little bit of enjoyment out of an episode about Kaz's everyday life that they pretend is about a curse. Um, <laughs> it just, for some reason, that uh, that tickled my fancy. So cruel. Uh, yes. And uh, with my Womp Rats, I mean, 
we know we have never seen who is inside the Guavian Death Gang's, uh, you know, their very cool armor, and uh, I think it's a bunch of Womp Rats. It's actually the Guavian Womp Rat Gang. Exactly. Because Womp Rats are dead. You yeah, really you don't want to mess with them. Yeah. No, especially if they fly like they did at the space battle. No, I wouldn't want to mess with them. <laughs> so coming up on Ion Cannon, we have The Mandalorian's Chapter 6. This was directed by Rick Famuyiwa and written by Christopher Yost and Rick Famuyiwa. So uh, in this episode, The Mandalorian joins a crew of mercenaries on a dangerous mission. So uh, yeah, it's uh, excited. Stay tuned for that this Friday and again next Wednesday for the uh, penultimate episode of The Mandalorian before the rise of Skywalker. So stay tuned. Next week is going to be a very, very busy week. uh, And we will be back with our reviews of The Mandalorian Chapter 6. And um, even more importantly, The Rise of Skywalker. So stay tuned that we will have a spoiler-free review of The Rise of Skywalker uh, as soon as the embargo lifts. Uh, I don't know if we can share the date yet, but it will be, uh, you know, early, probably first part of the week next week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, That's all we have for this episode, and we will talk to you guys later. May the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to the Ion Cannon Podcast, your source for entertainment reviews from a galaxy far, far away. For over a decade, Ion Cannon has covered every corner of the saga, from the films and animated series like The Clone Wars and Rebels, to books, comics, games, and more. If you like what you hear, please rate us in your favorite podcast client. Your review will help this show grow within the Star Wars community. We can be found at our website, ioncannoncast.com, and you can follow us through Facebook and Twitter. To email us, you can do so at contact at ioncannoncast.com. The Ion Cannon Podcast is not associated with Lucasfilm, The Walt Disney Company, or any and all of their respective trademarks or copyright holders. Any opinion expressed on the show are that of the hosts. This podcast is a production by fans, for fans, and is copyright 2018.